This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. A new study from Oregon Health and Science University used TikTok to survey teens and young adults about their understanding of menstrual health. It found that although the vast majority of respondents would prefer to control or stop their periods using hormonal medications, nearly two-thirds didn't realize that it would be safe to do so. Researchers also found that health literacy varies by region and by religion. Dr. Maureen Baldwin is one of the co-authors of the study. She is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at OHSU, and she joins us now. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. What prompted this study? Uh, this was a team research study project. It was driven by a group of pre-medical and medical students here at OHSU and at University of Washington. Um, Alexandra Jones-Packham, Colin Bainline, and Sydney Jones were the students. Um, they wanted to get a teen perspective about their knowledge about using medications for menstrual suppression. Why? Why? Why was the th- why was it necessary or or interesting to to learn what teens knew or thought about that? Well, I think we were interested in understanding whether most teens would want to use a medication that would change their period. And if they did, would they want their bleeding to be totally absent or to mimic a normal period and be on a monthly schedule? And, um, and you know, I think we know a lot about what contraception does to change periods. And we have a lot of information from adults about what their preferences are. But we haven't really ever asked teens what they want. Hmm. We'll get to what you learned in just a second. But why use TikTok as a way to find respondents for the survey? Yeah, usually surveys historically have been put out by phone call, but nobody answers their phone anymore. Hmm. Um, And, you know, sometimes using a QR code in a magazine will help get you respondents. But um, we, our teens, you know, our, our students thought that we could get more teens to answer a broad, um, a broad national, get a broad national sample um, if we put uh, out a recruitment on social media. And, um, you know, as you know, TikTok is short videos around 30 seconds long. And, um, and there are certainly, you know, influencers who put on a lot of these videos. So we wanted to use that venue to try to find a lot of teens who would be interested in the topic. How did you target them? Um, So uh, it just so happens that one of my uh, colleagues from residency here at OHSU, um, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, uh, who's an OBGYN here in Portland, um, has a pretty good influencer status on TikTok right now with almost 3 million followers. And so we worked with her to um, to use her TikTok channel that is um, what she calls um, the class you wish you had in high school about reproductive health. And it's targeted toward teens. So we asked her if she'd be so kind as to put a recruitment ad up on her TikTok channel. And she got totally into it. And we were able to um, have um, you know, over 3,000 completed surveys within uh, less than a few weeks uh, hmm. using that method. For folks who missed it, we actually talked to Dr. Lincoln last year uh, after her book, Let's Talk About Down There, came out. Um, and, and among other things, we actually talked about her decision to, to try to reach out to young people 
on social media and on TikTok to talk about menstruation and sexual health um, and, and other body issues. So folks can can find that on our website. So the survey, among other things, it focused on on questions about stopping or suppressing menstruation with hormonal medication. Um, what what most stood out to you in terms of of what you heard from the respondents in terms of of what they would want? Yeah, well, I think first just to maybe ask like why would a teen want to stop their bleeding? Why why would we be talking about menstrual suppression using hormonal medications in a in a teen or even a child as young as nine years old, I think it's really important to take a step back and say that um, periods can be extremely disruptive for uh, you know, substantial number of children um, can make them miss classes, um, make them stay home from school, and can be very painful. And in addition, can be one of the first signs of somebody having a bleeding disorder. And so, it's really important that we um, that we learn how to talk about um, using the medications that we know are safe um, with these children to help them get back to their normal lives. So you were asking me what we found. Um, so we, we introduced the research questions by saying we were studying preferences about the bleeding part of periods only, not like cramping or other symptoms. And we asked if they could, if they could magically pick their period bleeding style and it would have no permanent effects on their body, like their ability to have children in the future. We asked um, in a very typical sort of teen question way, would you rather have bleeding when you expect it, no bleeding at all, or hardly any bleeding, but not know when to expect it? And then we also give them the choice of honestly not knowing what they would prefer, because that has to always be a choice for teens. <laughs> and, and what were the results? Um, so from the initial sample, um, only 4% said that they would be okay with not knowing when they would expect to bleed. Um, and that was not surprising to me because most teens I've met are really not excited at all about starting their period unexpectedly. I mean, is, um, is anybody? <laughs> no, but I think adults are maybe a little bit more equipped with um, menstrual products in their bag to hmm. deal with it. And teens are just not quite ready for that yet. Hmm. Um, they just don't want to have an accident um, because they forgot to stock their backpack. And so what they end up doing is they go home from school. Hmm. What about the, the the options that they were most likely to choose? Yeah. So um, so in the analysis, we ended up removing those people um, who were okay with the unexpected bleeding and the few people who were totally unsure. And we looked at the numbers of teens who would prefer either the regular scheduled period um, or no bleeding at all, which is amenorrhea is the word for that. Um, and I'll remind you, we told them up front, it would not affect their body permanently. And from there, it was about 70-30 with preference for amenorrhea, no bleeding, in 70% versus scheduled bleeding in 30%. And that was pretty much what we see in line with uh, patients in clinic as well. Hmm. What did you find when you tried to understand the extent to which these teens understood um, that hormonal therapy, hormonal birth control is safe for, for, for this use. You, you called it magical and, and wouldn't affect them, but which is, you know, a kind of fanciful way of describing what for the vast majority of patients is actually the, the truth. But what did you find out in terms of their knowledge of this safety? 
Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, using FDA-approved hormonal medications, most but not all of which are um, approved as contraceptives and so have like a giant amount of data behind them. Um, it has just a huge amount of safety data, including including in young people. Um, and um, uh, however, because they're approved as contraceptives, I think that lends itself uh, to a lot of fear for younger people. And especially because most of us, even many of my colleagues in medicine will still use the term birth control, even when we're talking to an 11 year old. Um, and I think that just lends itself to so many myths um, about fertility, about changing their body, about medication building up in their body, about, you know, if the blood doesn't come out and we stop it from coming out, where is it going? And, um, and because we don't talk about it very much um, or hardly ever <laughs> in public, um, I think um, there's just a lot of secret fears. Um, we found um, when we introduced the topic saying that even prefacing that medications that won't cause long-term effects, um, that they were still very unsure about safety. And particularly, they were very unsure about the fertility impacts. What do you think it would take to change that? Because, I mean, in general, I, m my feeling is if young people don't know things, it's it's often not their fault. It's because they weren't taught those things. So what do you think it would take to to change what you found? I think that uh, having health education that's evidence-based in schools would be a start. Um, and I think we're on our way there in Oregon. You know, it's been a huge boon to have the Oregon Menstrual Health Dignity Act, which was passed in 2021 as House Bill 3294. That bill, um, that act requires all schools to provide menstrual products. Um, in bathrooms and in, in both gender neutral and male and female restrooms and schools. Um, and it also provides some stipulations about what the content of some education um, in, in health education classes, often called sex ed classes um, in schools and at which grade level they should be introduced as well. And that's a huge start, but often those lessons don't occur until later than when they would be needed. And so I think we need to think about age-appropriate education um, at even younger grade levels, even in second and third grade. Hmm. What did you learn in terms of um, the answers people gave you, young people gave you, uh, based on region and religion? Yes. Um, we, we compared knowledge questions that we asked, um, asked teens, um, and we asked them about their family religious background and also um, where they were. And this was a pretty widely distributed U.S. sample of, again, over 3,000 teens from age 14 to 24. Um, we asked them um, to identify their family religious background and about 61% had a Christian family background and um, a really large percent um, had um, a non-religious background. So we just compared those two large um, groups and we left out um, the smaller numbers of a wide variety of other religious backgrounds um, as we were looking for a big contrast. And so what we found is that um, comparing Christian family background to non-religious background, that 31% versus 24% thought that hormonal medications suppressing periods would be unsafe 
Um, so about a third in both, but a statistically different um, number higher in the Christian family background. And that 33% versus 20% thought that m these medications would lead to infertility. So again, uh, about a third and a higher in the Christian family background. So I think this just dem demonstrates that there are some gaps with a differential um, based on potentially a cultural family background. Hmm. What do you hope that parents or caregivers will, will take from this? We have about a minute left. Well, uh, I'm a parent and I think, um, you know, this can be a scary topic to talk about both with a kid, uh, you know, not wanting to talk about it with you, but also just not knowing what other people are telling your child and whether it's age appropriate. And I think it's just important to start um, by normalizing periods, normalizing the discussion about periods and taking it away from talking about sex and uh, the more adult side of reproductive health, um, just making sure that kids stay in school and um, and keep their iron storage levels up and not bleed too much. Dr. Maureen Baldwin, thanks very much. Thank you. Maureen Baldwin is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at OHSU. Tomorrow on the show, it's been about five months since Oregon's first psilocybin service centers opened. The owners of a number of these centers say that the vast majority of their customers are coming from out of state. We'll get an update on Oregon's first-in-the-country system on the next Think Out Loud. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by... Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation.